Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read the first five verses. It says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, consulted that they might take Jesus by subtly and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day, in other words, not during the Passover, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. So the message tonight is plotting the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have to open your word. Thank you for the record we have of the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was our Passover that died in our place as our substitute, that we have life, eternal life in him. And I pray tonight that you would encourage us and challenge us and give us an appreciation for our God and what he did for us, purchasing our redemption. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John Butler, in his introduction to Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, said this, quote, The crucifixion of Christ manifested the compassion of Christ like nothing else. It also manifested the depravity of man like nothing else. Unquote. You know, a striking free feature of the crucifixion events is the many times in which the scriptures say, and it was fulfilled. Wicked men did things, and then it would say, and it was fulfilled. And that's kind of an amazing thing. It reminds us that even during the crucifixion, God did not lose control. You know, it seems like, it appears to the world, that the world has control of everything during this time. That Jesus has lost control. He's at the mercy and whims of these people. But I remind you that the death of Christ was something that was spoken of before the world began. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of, the, of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And of course, John, in his writings, in John chapter 10 and verse 17 and 18, <clears throat> reminds us, you know, Jesus said to his disciples before he was arrested, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life. No man, or that I might take it again, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. See, his life wasn't taken from him. He wasn't martyred. He gave it. He gave it. 
Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, Apostle Paul, instructing the churches of Galatia, said this, under inspiration, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. God sent forth His Son to be a redeemer, a substitute, to die in the place of you and I. So, despite how it looks to the world, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that God has lost control of things, that is not the case. And we'll see that as we go along here. First of all, I want to notice the plotting for the rest of Christ. And this is what we're looking about. I want to notice, you know, of course, a plot is a secret plan or a scheme to trap and to destroy. You know, and a good example of a plot would be the plot that the other presidents made against Daniel. You know, they plotted, they schemed how they might find a way to destroy Daniel. Because there was, there's nothing they could find wrong with him, with his life, or with his, his, uh, work that he did for the king. There was, he was above, he was blameless, as we looked this morning. He was blameless. There was nothing they could, you know, grab a hold of in his life to say, you see, king, you see, this guy's doing something wrong here. And so they had to scheme, they had to plot. And they come up with this plot of, you know, that they presented before the king of nobody was allowed to pray for 30 days except for the king. And the only purpose of that was to destroy Daniel. That was the only purpose. And that was a plot. You know, this isn't anything new that plots against Christ. These began from the time he was born. In his infancy, Herod tried to, to kill him. Uh, you know, and he had to flee, Joseph had to flee into Egypt with the young child. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 29, he, when he was at Nazareth, he went into the, the, the synagogue and read from the scriptures and said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Yeah, he read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And, and they led him to the brow of the hill to cast him down headlong, but the Bible says that he passing through the midst of him went his way. In John 7 verse 30, it says they sought to take him. Verse 32, they sent officers to take him. John 8, 59, they took up stones to stone him. So there was continually plots to destroy the Son of God throughout his life. But I want you to notice several things here as we consider the the plotting for the rest of Christ. First of all, the providence of this framing. If you notice in verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, It came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these things, he said unto his disciples, you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests, notice, then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. So Jesus spoke of the plot against him before it actually took place. You know, being God, he was fully aware of this plot against him and he was also fully aware when the arrest and the crucifixion would occur. And he would determine the time. You know, evil men, these evil men thought they were in control here. They thought they would capture him by surprise. In fact, the verse 4 says they, 
that they were going to try and take him by satellite. But Jesus told his disciples that, you know, that after the two days is the Passover and the Son of Man is, is betrayed. In other words, it's going to happen. He knows it's going to happen to be crucified. He knows he's going to be crucified. So he knew he'd be arrested. He knew, he knew when. You know, Acts 2.23, when Peter was preaching to the Pharisees on the day of Pentecost and Jewish people there in Jerusalem, he said this, Him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He didn't say the determinate counsel of the Sanhedrin. He said it was before the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken, by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You know, though these evil men plotted against Christ for their purpose, what they did not understand is they were tools, instruments of cruelty and deception and wickedness being used by the devil to try and destroy the Son of God. But would in actuality fulfill the plan of God. So we see the providence of God in this strange plot. We see, secondly, the persons of the plot. Now, this, to me, is kind of amazing. And, and there's three, three groups here mentioned in verses, verse 3. It says, Then assembled together the chief priests and scribes and the elders of the people. So, you know, these were, these were an influential group of people. Chief priests, scribes, and elders. Now, chief priests, they were members of the priesthood. They served in the temple. Uh, the elders would be the civic leaders of the Jewish nation. The scribes, the Bible teachers. So these were the Bible teachers and scholars of the Old Testament Scriptures. And together, these three groups made up what was called the Sanhedrin, or sometimes it was called the Seventy. There was... You know, there's some discrepancy about how many, but 70 or 71 members. And they were the ruling body of the nation of Israel as far as the Jews was concerned. We understand they were under Roman occupation at this time, so they were really under Roman rule. But under that Roman rule, they still had some authority amongst themselves enforcing Jewish laws that the Romans did not enforce. And, and so these were men of high position and authority. You know, is uh, this group that... You know, that Jesus was brought before for examination, or might we say persecution. Uh, and it reminds us also that high position seldom helps the work of God. You know, governments, schools, colleges, universities. You know, where's all the, where's all the, uh, Marxism and the stuff that's being taught to our young people coming from? Is it not in our schools and our universities? Yeah, they're often seedbeds of error and apostasy. You know, many colleges, quote, Bible colleges started in the 70s or earlier by fundamentalists have become bastions of compromise. BJU used to be called the Citadel of Faith. I think it's more like the Citadel of Compromise now. 
and a lot of others. Many of them are just civil, liberal arts schools seeking accreditation of the world to attract a greater student body. Your conventions started by Baptists, Southern Baptist Convention, now teaching critical race theory. I have an article here uh, titled, Marxist Concepts Have Footholds at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Southeastern is right over here in Wake Forest. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I think, is in Texas. Um, but anyway, and it's, it's an article written by a guy by the name of Will Hall. He's the message executive editor. And he's writing about a man by the name of Craig Mitchell. And I'll just read part of this to you. It says, quote, speaking to Louisiana college students as part of a, quote, church, or Christ, church, and culture, quote, unquote, series about current cultural issues from a biblical perspective, a national speaker on ethics explained, by the way, this is March 12, 2020, the, the, this national speaker on ethics explained the controversial concepts of critical race theory and intersectionality, intersectionality and expressed worries that these Marxist ideologies have gained footholds among the faculty of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Craig Mitchell, by the way, he is a black man. It's Craig Mitchell. President of the Ethics and Political Economy Center, an evangelical think tank based in Dallas, Texas, described critical race theory and intersectionality as emerging from Marxist thought, which at its primary tenet declares that there is no God. He added, these two concepts also developed within the framework of different branches of thought that inform the social justice movement. But ultimately, both of these concepts pre present a perspective that there is a conflict between an oppressor and an oppressed, and that the oppressor cannot know right or morality. Consequently, critical race theory perpetuates the notion that white people cannot know right and cannot be moral. That's what critical race theory teaches. Likewise, he goes on and says, intersectionality, which was shaped fundamentally by black feminist lesbians, declares that a man cannot know truth or the moral thing to do. Is there injustice in society? Mitchell rhetorically asked. There is, he said, because we live in a sinful world. A sinful, fallen world, and the best that this world has to offer is still pretty messed up. That's very true. If you're looking for perfect justice, if you're looking for perfect righteousness, you're not going to find it until Christ comes again, Mitchell declared. When you look at Revelation 20, Jesus Christ comes down and reigns in Jerusalem for a thousand years, Thousand years of perfect justice, a, a thousand years of righteousness. Then you know what happens? People rebel. After a thousand years of righteousness, people are going to rebel. That's what the Bible tells. This guy knows what he's talking about. Mitchell said justice and righteousness cannot be attained through either big or little government, quote unquote. Instead, both will be restored by Jesus Christ. Not right now, but in his timing. The best thing you can do is share the gospel of Jesus Christ with this fallen world, Mitchell offered. 
to the degree that you share the gospel with others and they come to Christ and they strive for justice and righteousness, we will have a more righteous society. Not perfect. But don't think you can do it through politics and don't think you can do it through economics. Unquote. He says this stuff is Marxist theology. And he names the guys that are teaching it. Uh, Walter Strickland over here at Southeastern is teaching critical race theory. By the way, you can Google him and find it out for yourself. That's how I found this. Being taught right over here at Southeastern. You see, that is infecting many churches. It's an infection. A little leaven leavens a whole lot. And these people in high places are influential people. You know, the Bible, Paul warned us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, where he says, You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now, he didn't say not any. He said not many. You know, I'm glad we have some wise people, some scholars, that can you know, help us understand some of these more difficult things that, that you know, with the scriptures, understand Greek and Hebrew and all that. You know, I don't understand Hebrew. I don't, I don't know the first thing about Hebrew. I know very little about Greek. You know, I'm glad we have some wise men. But wisdom, worldly wisdom, might, and nobility, along with humility, is not often found in the same person. You know, when I made, wrote down that statement, I thought to myself, there was one man in the history of the United States who I think that would describe. General George Washington. He was noble. He was a wise man. He was a mighty man. But he knew. He understood His privilege, he understood that he was accountable also to God. And he could have become a king, but he did not. He chose not to. So this was an influential group. Secondly, it's an inexcusable group. Again, they were chief, these chief, think of these men, these three groups, chief priests. These were the men responsible for receiving the offerings and the sacrifices of the people that were slain as substitutes types of substitutes for sin, doing it year after year, knowing that these sacrifices could never make the comers perfect. That these sacrifices pointed to one day a sacrifice that would make them perfect. That these sacrifices were only types. You know, it was only they only pictured you know until that time that the lamb chosen of God and precious would come who would be the anti-type, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices, and that this lamb of God would perfect forever them that are sanctified. That'd be the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that John said, "Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world." John pointed him out to them.
Should not they have known who this was? You know, all the temple worship declared the holiness of God and the need of a Redeemer to take away their sin. There is so much typology in the temple and the furnishings of the temple. Take the bale, just for, just for an illustration. You know, that bale was made of, of, there was some linen and it white, speaks of righteousness, but entwined in that, used like thread, was gold. And gold speaks of deity. Royalty. You see the humanity of Christ? You also see in that curtain the deity of Christ. It's sort of like you go to Washington, D.C., and you look around and you see you can see Bible, the Bible, and references to God everywhere. And then people say, God didn't have anything to do with the founding of our nation. And you're gonna say, well, that's about the dumbest thing I ever heard. Alright? Okay, but these guys wouldn't know. That's kind of the way I, I see it. You have the scribes, the Bible teachers of the day. They prided themselves in the knowledge of the scriptures. When they were asked by Herod where Christ was to be born, they rattled off in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. The land of Judea are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. But they seem to ignore other passages of Scripture that are just as plain. For example, Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yet they accuse Jesus of being born of fornication. Now how can this be? Or Isaiah 53, and I don't have time to read it all, but all of it speaks of Christ and His suffering. Isaiah 61 Verses one and one and verse part of verse two, Jesus read it in in Luke chapter four when he's in the synagogue at Nazareth, and it says this: "The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach God good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord." I mean, all this, you know, it typified his earthly ministry. He healed the sick, he made the lame to walk, the blind to see, raised the dead, gave eternal life to all who believed on him. You know, he, this, 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 these, this verse describes his ministry and his activities during this, his time on earth. And they were furious. And that's when they head him to the brow of the hill to throw him head down, headlong. But he, Pass through the midst of them. Just walk through the midst of them and so pass by. Or Daniel 9.26 tells us the time Messiah would be cut off. It's like saying, hey guys, here's your sign. It's on a billboard. Then you had the elders. These were the guys who were responsible to execute the law of civil government for the nation of Israel. They were to uphold the law. Okay, one of the things was a just trial. 
make sure things are done legally. And the whole arrest and trial of Jesus was illegal by Jewish standards. The whole thing. In an article or website called Life, Hope, and Truth, Harold Rhodes gives ten reasons the trial of Jesus was illegal. And I'll just give you a few of them. First of all, the arrest was illegal. Notice that those who were involved in Christ's arrest included the priests, the elders, his judges. Are judges allowed to make arrests? And among them also were the very ones who bribed Judas. Moreover, Jesus was arrested secretly by night. That's illegal. He was not arrested on a formal charge of any crime. There was no charge presented to him. There was no warrant for his arrest. No statement of what he had done. They just simply took him. Secondly, it was a private night proceeding. That was illegal by Jewish law. Thirdly, the Sanhedrin illegally proceeded to hold its trial of Jesus before sunrise. That was illegal also. Everything was to be done during the day. Third, fourthly, the Sanhedrin was illegally convened to try a capital fence on a day before an annual Sabbath. You know, they even say that themselves here. They didn't want to do it on Sabbath day, but I'll address that a little bit later. And number five, and then again, I'm not giving you all ten, the trial of Jesus was illegal because it was concluded in one day. You know, a trial was supposed to be at least a week by Jewish law. Less than one day. In fact, by 3 o'clock, he was crucified. No, not 3 o'clock. 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock in the morning, he was crucified. And they arrested him at night. You know, why were these groups so blind? How could they not know? You know, when we have preconceived thoughts and ideas of how we think things should be, and we have our hearts and minds made up and clouded thereby, we can't see the truth. We're blinded by the truth. Our own hearts. See, the reality is, when we have preconceived thoughts and ideas of how things we think should be, be, we really many times just don't want to see it. And sometimes it requires a chastening hand of God heavy on us before we will humble our obstinate heart to yield to the truth. You know, how often can you look back in your life and see where the truth that you maybe now embrace was presented to you before and you didn't accept it? Because you were unwilling time to receive it. When I thought about that, it was kind of embarrassing, to say the least. You know, it, it isn't easy to change my mind. But it's been done. 
Well, let's think about this. In John 16, verse 12, Jesus says to his disciples, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. And the phrase there, cannot bear them, means you're not equal to understanding a matter or receiving it calmly. In other words, you're not going to receive it. You, you, can't, you can't quite comprehend this yet. Because you, you, you can't receive it calmly because it's, 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 it's out there to you and you don't want it. And I'll give you a good illustration of that. We know. <clears throat> you know, you know. In other words, you won't listen. You will not get it even if I tell you because your mind is set in another direction. That's kind of the idea. And the illustration of that is in Matthew 16 where Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going to be, he's going to be delivered under the, chief, the, 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 the Jews and crucified. And Peter takes him aside and said, It shall not be so, Lord. You know what Jesus said to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. See, Peter could not receive that because he wasn't willing yet to receive it. Therefore, he was blinded to the truth because he was unwilling to receive the truth. He didn't want to accept the truth. It could not be that Jesus, his Lord, would be crucified. And as far as he was concerned, it was not going to happen. And Jesus rebuked him. He said, you get behind me, Satan. He didn't mean he was actually Satan, but you're doing the work of Satan here. And you know, they did not get it. Just like many times, we don't get it. You know, in Matthew 24, in Acts chapter 1, they're still asking about his kingdom. He's, going to, he's, he's ready to go to the cross. He's in the garden, and they're asking about the kingdom. It's after his resurrection, and they're asking about the kingdom. still asking. Look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And again, this this shows, this illustrates this point here. And all of us are guilty of this to a certain degree. John chapter 20, verse 6 says, Then cometh Simon Peter. So, okay, the resurrection has happened. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary had come to the sepulcher and they find it open. And so they tell Peter and John. And so they come running. It says, Then cometh Simon Peter, verse 6, following him, went into the sepulcher and see the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in the place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Notice verse 9. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now let me ask you a question. Did he tell them he was going to rise from the dead? Yes, he did. But see, their minds, they still had this preconceived idea. He wasn't going to die. They had a hard time accepting it. Just like sometimes we have a hard time accepting things because we don't want to change. We don't want to humble ourselves. This, this knew not means to, they could not perceive it. They would not consider it. They wouldn't consider it. 
<clears throat> See, if you're not willing or have a desire to do the will of God, as we mentioned this morning, God's will won't be known to you. Yeah, the will of God's not complicated. We make it that way by resisting the unbelief. So this was, you know, an inexcusable group. How often we are inexcusable as well. Then we see, thirdly, the plans of the plot. And we'll notice several things here. First of all, the method of the capture in verse 4. It says, and they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtly and kill him. In other words, subtly means by secrecy or by deception. You know, evil doesn't know any no integrity. It, it cannot do its work by honest means. You know, so much of what goes on today in society and our world is deception. It's a cover-up. It's created. You know, they create continual chaos to cover up this 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 bad deal or this this uh, crime that was committed. And you know, we see this in politics constantly now. There's, there's one scandal after another, and the, the, the new scandal always makes everyone forget about the old scandal. And the old scandals then go unprosecuted. It's what you're seeing in our nation. You know, working behind the scenes to scheme, cover up, to trap, to manipulate. Yeah, they had evil intentions. You know, if your business or activity requires subtlety or craftiness, you're involved in the wrong business. That's the job of God. You can't be honest. You need to change your business. If they wanted to take him by subtlety, we want you to notice the moment of the capture. Verse 5 says, But they said not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, the word day is in italics, so it was added for clarity. But this phrase really refers to the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the, the Passover, uh, the time during the Passover. Uh, Luke 22, verses 1 and 2 says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. So this is referring to the, the week of the Passover, the Passover week, not just a single day. And... Uh, <clears throat> And it says, and the chief priests sought and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. So, so here it is. They they want to they want to arrest Jesus. They want to capture. They want to well, they want rid of him. But these tyrants are really cowards, which tyrants are. What do you realize? Not tyrants are really cowards, because they feared. The Bible says they feared lest there be an uproar among the people. So they feared doing it during their the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because during this time, you know, this was the biggest feast day in, in Israel. And Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem. Uh, they believe as many as two or three million people would be gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. So they thought it might be risky to arrest Jesus during this time. Uh, you know, people may side with Christ and their wicked plot might be revealed and they might lose their high and lofty positions. You know, they feared the people more than they feared doing wrong and they feared the people more than they feared God.
Does the proverb say, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion? You know, they fear the people more than doing wrong and more than God. You know, when your fear, your fear reveals your God, your fear reveals your character as well. But you know, when men pursue evil, nothing is sacred. Think about this. These men are willing to put Jesus to death on their most holy Their most sacred day. The Passover. And despite the fact that they were fearful of this, their animosity and their hatred for Jesus Christ is so intense that all they needed was the right opportunity. And if you know, if you persist in evil, the devil will give you the opportunity. Luke 22.3 says, Then entered Satan into Judas, Surnamed Iscariot, being the number of the twelve. And of course, we know what he did. He went to the chief priests and offered to betray. So the opportunity presents itself. And they will violate every matter of conscience against evil that they have to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. They have found a way, they think, to rid themselves once for all of this one who claims to be the Son of God who revealed their sin, their rebellion against God, who exposed their fraud of holding the traditions of men above God, their unlawful dealings with widows and orphans. But here's the amazing thing. The paradox, if you will. The self-contradictory deception they're playing into. They are fulfilling the plan of God. God is a God of detail. Details. The God they didn't know. They're fulfilling his plan. And they will mar their own religious religious observance, violate their own law in their minds. And in doing so, they were fulfilling the word of God and the word of the Lord Jesus. You know, Jesus said to them, you know, they appear outwardly beautiful, but inwardly they were like dead man's bones and open sepulchers. You know, the the English translation, modern day translation of that is, you are rotten to the core. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Now, their intention was, as it says in verse 5, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar amongst the people. However, go to Matthew, or Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. In verse 24. So Jesus is arrested at night. His trial is before dawn, before the Sanhedrin. And then at dawn, he's taken to Pilate. Or in the early morning. We don't even know if it was daylight yet then. 
Bible isn't really clear about that. However, this we do know. Verse 24. When they had crucified him, they parted his garments from casting lots upon them, whatever man should take. And it was the third hour. Now, the third hour is 9 a.m. So by 9 a.m., they've already crucified him. 9 a.m. Drop down to verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So the sixth hour, if nine, if, if the third hour is 9 a.m., the sixth hour is noon. So from, from uh, the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land to the ninth hour. That's at 3 o'clock. Now let me read the rest of this here. Verse 33. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it, and behold, he said, behold, he called Elias. One ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, let us alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. And when the centurion which stood against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. So at the third hour he died. Do you know what time the Jews killed their Passover lambs in the temple? The third The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Jesus, our Passover, is slain for us. You see, these men didn't intend to have him put to death on the Passover day. The day the lambs were be slain, the Passover lambs were be slain, they didn't intend that to happen. But see, this reminds us they are not. They just think they are. According to Jewish Encyclopedia, Passover title, article titled Passover Sacrifice by the Executive Committee of the Editorial Board, Jacob Somebody. <laughs> And talking about the sacrifice. The sacrificial animal, which was either a lamb or a kid, was necessarily a male, one year old, without blemish. Each family or society offered one victim together, which did not require the laying on of hands. Though it was obligatory to determine who were to take part in the sacrifice, that the killing might take place within the proper intentions. Only those who were uncircumcised and clean before the law might participate. And they were forbidden to leave leavened food in their possession during the act of killing the paschal lamb. The animal was slain on the eve of the Passover. On the afternoon of the 14th, that, that's the 14th day of the first month, which would be was considered uh, April in in uh, Jewish calendar. Uh, on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan, after the Tammuz sacrifice had been killed at 3 o'clock. See, John the Baptist told him, Behold.
And whether wicked men try to thwart the plans of God or not, God's plan and God's purposes will be fulfilled. You know, wicked men are still trying to do that. Wicked men are trying to prevent people from coming to Christ. Wicked men are trying still, still, still trying to destroy, wipe Israel off the face of the map. It's not going to happen. Israel is going to suffer greatly yet for their sin and their rebellion against God. In fact, the Bible tells us that two-thirds of them will die. That one-third will turn to their Savior. You see, the point here is God rules in the affairs of men. God rules. In Daniel chapter 4, you know, probably the mightiest king that lived, at least in his day, for many years, he was also haughty. And he found out that God rules. Daniel 4, the Bible says, Nebuchadnezzar the king unto all people, nations, and languages dwell on all the earth. Peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now this testimony that he's giving here is really... He's, he is, is really something that he gives after he is deposed from his throne. He's going to tell us how that happened in chapter 4. You know, he gets this vision of this big tree, and of course he calls it, you know, the branches are filled with the fowl of the air and all and, and, you know, all over the world and so on, and he doesn't know what it is. He's troubled by it, and the wise men are called in, and they can't, and finally calls in Daniel, and Daniel says, you're the, you're the tree, and your height reached to heaven. So is your pride. God's going to cut you down. But it's going to leave the stump. Lord, you're going, to, you're going to be driven from your throne. And you're going to live like an insane man for a period of time. But he's going to leave the stump. Because your throne is going to be given back to you when you realize that God rules in the affairs of man. And that's what he's referring to here. And in verse 34 of Daniel 4, he says, at the end of days, I never, and you know, after my, my sanity returned, I lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him that liveth forever and ever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of, of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? In Acts chapter 12, we have a haughty king. Besides, he's going to meddle and mock the Lord and his church. So he kills James with the sword. And he saw that that made the Jews happy. So he decides, I'm going to get Peter too. So he puts him in prison. Prayer was one to be made for Peter of the church. And we know at night an angel of the Lord came and delivered Peter out of the prison. And this haughty king executes the soldiers who really weren't guilty. 
Then he goes down to Caesarea and makes a speech. And they give him a oration and say he is a god. He accepted worship thinking he's a god. But immediately he was struck dead. It even worse. See, God rules in the affairs of men. Ephesians 1.11 says this, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. You know, I don't understand everything that God does or everything that God allows. I understand more than I used to. I used to say, I don't know why God allowed Stephen to die. I do now. Because from Stephen's death came the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul. Who suffered much for his Lord. God didn't justify the death of Stephen, but he allowed it. The old Obadiah Holmes was beaten almost to death. Why'd God allow that? What it did was turn the hearts and minds of New Englanders against the state church. See, it did more than probably anything to change the minds of people. This state church is a beast. Forcing people to believe and to attend church and to believe certain things, try to make them believe certain things, force them, that's a beast. Just like the Roman Catholic Church is a beast. Islam is a beast. You know, Psalm 76 verse 10 says this, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. You know, even the wrath of man, I remember James Earl saying one time, he said, you know, of course, he was a black independent Baptist preacher. He said, my people sold my people to white people, to your people as slaves. But because they sold black people, sold black people, sold black people as slaves to white people, I got to come to America where I heard the gospel. As I heard the gospel, I got saved. My brothers got saved. My children got saved. He said, even the wrath of man shall praise thee. You could be still in Africa tucking his beard. So you may plot and scheme and manipulate, fight, empower your way through life, at least think you will. Try to work things out your own way. But remember, God is in control. God is in control of affairs of men. 1 Timothy 6, 14, 15 says that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his time he shall show, who is a blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, we are to keep this in mind and live in light of it. Then when it is his time, 
when it is His time to rule and reign, He will be your only, the only mighty and great authority. That's what potentate means. So, He commands us to live in light of that. Live to please Him. You see, Jesus allowed Himself to be arrested. He allowed Himself to be tried. He allowed Himself to be put to death. He never lost control of things. He said, I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. And men and women, governments may plot against God and they may plot against God's people. But our time is not in their hands. It's in the hand of our Heavenly Father. What did Jesus tell His disciples in John chapter 10? That they were in my Father's hands. And no man can pluck them out of my Father's hands. See, our time is in the hand of God. And we need to serve Him. We need to obey Him. You know, the most amazing thing about all this is, you know, one of the amazing things is, the even more amazing the fact that, to me, that He never lost control of things, but one of the sayings from the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know what that means? If any one of them would have repented and sought forgiveness. He would have saved them. He would have forgiven them. After all, God so loved the world. Even those Pharisees, scribes, the elders, the Roman soldiers, Love them too. And this is the message we need to give the lost and dying world.